Well, good morning. My name is Stuart McCray. I have the joy of serving on staff here as one of the pastors, and we are in the midst of a, of a topical series, Redeeming Sex and Sexuality. Uh, if you are a guest, two things. One, it's Father's Day, and this is the sermon that we're preaching. Second, we normally preach through just books of the Bible. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've gone through Acts and Galatians and Ecclesiastes, and normally our diet is just preaching through books of the Bible. Every once in a while, we will, we will pause and do a topical series to be poignant about a particular topic, and here we are talking about sex and sexuality. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, sorry, verse 27, Matthew 5, Verses 27 through 30, while you're turning there, have you heard of the Song of the Sirens? The, the sirens were mythical creatures that showed up in Homer's epic, The Odyssey. Early on in the story, the main character, Odysseus, receives warning about what he can expect on his journey to Ithaca. There's this alluring island, and on the island there are these creatures, the sirens, and they sing this beautiful song as the sailors pass by. Their song, however, was not a free concert. No, the sailors would hear their song as they passed by. They become so hypnotized, so captivated, that all they could do is just steer their ship towards the island. The problem? It's a trap. The sailors would be lured in only to be shipwrecked and drowned. Well, Odysseus could not help himself. He had to hear what drove men crazy even to their own deaths. He had to hear the song of the sirens, and so he had a plan, this was his plan. He, he convinced his crew to put in their ears thick beeswax so they couldn't hear the song, tie him to the mast of the ship, and then compelled them, do not untie me, no matter how much I cry to be untied. While the day came, the ship has sailed, the island is in view, and Odysseus can hear the song. He can see the, the bones surrounding the sirens, but hypnotized. He just wants to be at the feet of the sirens. Now he tries to loosen the ropes. He begs the sailors to undo his, his shackles. But the ropes hold. The ship passes by, and Odysseus comes out of his spell. Even though death Loomed. Odysseus wanted nothing more than to be with the sirens. This illustratively captures the alluring song of lust and the devastating effects it can have on us. Let's read our passage. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In this passage, Jesus teaches us that in the battle against lust, you must avoid three errors. Now, the immediate context to our passage is the Sermon on the Mount. That's chapters 5 through 7. But the, but the backdrop to our passage is the Exodus 
and Moses giving the Ten Commandments. I say that for a couple of reasons. One, the Sixth Commandment is quoted here in our passage. What's more, immediately preceding that is Jesus quoting and teaching on the Fifth Commandment. And what's more, immediately preceding that is Jesus saying this, starting in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You see, just as, G, uh, just as Moses was on Mount Sinai, giving the Ten Commandments to God's people, Jesus, the greater Moses, is up on the mount with his disciples surrounding him, teaching them what it looks like to be God's holy people, kingdom citizens. And in our passage, Jesus teaches us that in the battle against lust, you must avoid three errors. You must avoid the wrong diagnosis of your problem, the wrong approach to kill your lust, and the wrong motive to kill your lust. All right, let's look at these each in turn. In the battle against lust, you must avoid the wrong diagnosis of your problem. Let's reread verses 27 through 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. There it is. Jesus quotes the sixth commandment. And then he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is not like Moses who received the law from God to then give to God's people. Jesus is God. Jesus is the authoritative one. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says this, and when Jesus finished these teachings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. With authority, Jesus interprets for them the full range of implications of the law that was already given. Now, so there's no confusion. Jesus is addressing men because he is engaging a patriarchal society. But, but ladies, if you think you are off the hook for this ethic, you'd be dead wrong. So for everyone in the battle against lust, each of us must avoid the wrong diagnosis of our problem as simply being a behavioral issue. God's standard for purity goes way deeper to the desires and intentions of our hearts. And the, and the, reason, the reason for this is that the, the Bible says that our, our heart, your heart, is the reason why you do what you do and love what you love and desire what you desire. It, it's the cause for why. Why you do and love and hate and want anything. In, in Mark 7, 20 through 22, Jesus says, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Listen, before sinful lust shows up in your behaviors, it is generated, it originates in your heart. Lust comes from your heart. Let's make two distinctions. Looking or admiring beauty, not the issue. The issue is 
Listen, the issue is using your imagination to fantasize about or objectify another person for personal sexual pleasure. Second distinction. Jesus is not saying that lustful desires are identical to lustful deeds, and, and therefore you might as well just go commit adultery because no difference. No! Desires and the deeds are not the same. Now, spiritually speaking, Jesus is saying that they're both sin and they're both damnable. But listen, actual adultery is different than imaginative adultery. Assuredly, actual adultery carries with it greater marital, greater personal consequences. But family, Jesus is, is pushing back against the tendency to focus on externals, to, to make godliness a matter of behavior regardless of the heart's desires and intentions. You see, Jesus doesn't want to give legalistic rule followers any loopholes for escape. The sixth commandment says you shall not commit adultery. And if you haven't, praise God. But Jesus says that if you just look at a person with lustful intent, desire, you've violated the commandment in your heart. Lust is so many things. Lust is dehumanizing. People become sex objects to be used rather than human beings created in the image of God to love. Lust is isolating. Lust is selfish. It's idolatrous self-worship. Lust is laziness. It desires pleasure without any of the work of marriage. Lust is shame-producing. Lust is sin. And apart from the forgiveness found in Jesus, it, does, it is deserving God's just wrath against us, against it. When you talk about porn for a moment, as far as I can tell, I've been in this church about 10, 11 years. I think this is the first time we've addressed this from the pulpit. Porn's a problem for men, women, and yes, children. It's pervasive. Some studies show that 64% of Christian men, 15% of Christian women, and 57% of Christian teens look at it monthly. It's harmful. Porn negatively impacts your mind, your relationships, and like the song of the sirens, becomes harder and harder to resist. Here's what I want to make inescapably clear. If you use porn regardless of the underlying reasons, laziness, boredom, loneliness, emotional distraction or suppression, the diversion from anxieties, low self-esteem, stress reduction, you are also at the same time lusting in your heart and therefore sinning, committing spiritual adultery in your heart. Porn is sin. So, so, so hear me. If you're struggling with porn, you are in sin. 
me again. There's full forgiveness in Jesus. There's hope for freedom in Jesus. Hear me again. One of the lies of lust, lies of porn, is that you are alone on an island. You are not. Hear me. There are people that want to give you help to find freedom, that God wants to use. I, Pastor Doug, the elders, we want to be able to come alongside you and help you. Please don't go this alone. Brothers and sisters, in the battle against lust, Jesus says that your lust problem is first and foremost a heart problem. Lust is complicated. Sin is complicated. But there's hope for change in the gospel. Family, if you want long-lasting behavior change, if you want your affections reoriented, you must first pursue heart change. And the pathway for heart change and a, and a growing love for Jesus begins with godly repentance, not worldly sorrow. And in, in worldly sorrow, we feel terrible for our sin, but not because we see our sin as an offense to God, but because our sin might produce the loss of reputation family, friendships, marriage, job. Worldly sorrow is focused on us. Our emotions may be high, there may be tears, there may be self-loathing, oh, promises for change, but every time worldly sorrow will come up empty. It's hopeless. On the other hand, Godly repentance sourced in the gospel is focused on God. There's sorrow over sin, sinful behavior, sinful desires as having offended God. There is grief over the broken relationship with God. There is sorrow. There is tears. There are tears, but with hope. Repentance is walking in the light of honesty and confessing your sins to God, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness through Jesus. Holy repentance is turning away from sin and turning to God. listen, it's not that we shouldn't do radical things to our behaviors and circumstances. Jesus is going to tell us that in just a moment. But if we diagnose our real problem as being external to us, then we won't see our hearts as our fundamental problem. All right, so speaking of doing radical things and the battle against lust, the second thing you must avoid, the second thing you must avoid is the wrong approach to kill your lust. Let's reread verses 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, because it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In the battle against lust, you must resist being soft and passive with your lust. That is, not willing to go to the extreme lengths that it will take to kill your lust. The, the, this, is the, this is the passivity and the softness that may believe that God will just take this desire and temptation. We'll just change you and you won't have to do a thing. Opposed to this way of thinking, Jesus gives us a gr- gruesome Proposition, tearing out eyes and cutting off hands. Now, now listen, if you, if you dismiss this teaching of Jesus with the, uh, whoa, kind of unnecessary gruesome there, Jesus, don't you think? Then you've missed the gruesome nature of lust. Listen, Jesus addresses this to his disciples because softness and passivity towards lust exists amongst believers. Does it in you? Let me give you two ways that this this softness, this passivity might present itself. One author suggests that many of us have have a diet mentality towards Lust. Many of us, we, we want to cut back on lust. It, it doesn't make us feel good. We, we know it's bad. We, want, we would want to resist it, but much like rich calorie desserts, it's just too, too tasty to stop completely. And surely God is sympathetic if we break our, our diet every, every now and again. You know, get too intimate on a date here, watch a questionable movie there, or indulge in a quick ungodly fantasy there. Well, dieting is hard, so others go the route of domesticating lust. This is the the lie, I I mean belief, that we've got our sin under control. In an episode of the great TV show in the late 90s, when animals attack, there's this scene, there's this shampoo commercial. a lady walks on a model and she is directed to lay down on the mane of a lion so that they can showcase both of their extravagant hair. The lion attacks, rips her to shreds. The the next scene's an interview with the lion tamer. He couldn't see this coming. It's a lion! The, the trainer's just stunned. He goes on about how he just raised this line from a cub and would hold it in its arms and take it on walks and would, would, would brush its mane. He just can't see how this happened. It's an apex predator. I mean, that all seems ridiculous, but, but listen, many of us are playing around with our lust like that trainer was with a lion. We convince ourselves that we we have it under control. We've domesticated our sin. It does what we tell it to do, and I can stop whenever I want to, thank you very much. Look straight up, some of you think your lust problem is under control because no one knows about it, or in your own estimation, it doesn't happen enough to be considered a real problem. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God sees you. God knows your heart, and because he loves you, he's calling you out this morning as a spiritual adulterer. Do not play with lions. 
If you try to manage your temptation or domesticate your sin, at some point it will devour you. We can be too soft, too passive with our lust, and it's because we love our sin more than we love Jesus. Well, Jesus, Jesus tells us the right approach to kill your lust. Be resolute. Be aggressive. Be resolute. Lust is a cancer, not a scratch. And just like cancer can't be removed with a Band-Aid and ointment, devastating action is required to kill your lust. Family, many of us, the, the right approach to kill lust will involve aggressive, radical amputation of our behaviors and circumstances. Listen, if having access to things like Netflix, HBO, Hulu is stirring up lust, tear it out. If a dating relationship is tempting you or is the occasion for stirring up lust, cut it off. The, the, the lengths the length you might need to go to for purity of heart will cause some to think of you as prudish, and narrow-minded. So what? Expect mockery from your unbelieving friends and coworkers when they discover the lengths that you go to for obedience to God. But listen, listen, family, family, it is better. It is better to accept some cultural amputation in order to maintain purity of heart than to keep your Netflix account on the way to hell. Listen, Jesus is saying if you don't fight sin with the kind of seriousness that's willing to gouge out your eye, you will go to hell and suffer there forever. This is a wake-up call, family. Some of us have long heard the song of the siren have been spellbound by lust, by sin. If you've become comfortable with your sin, if you're not actively, ruthlessly fighting your sins, you need to ask yourself, has God saved me? Here's some questions. Some self-examination. Think about the last few months against Jesus' words. Just generally, sin. Certainly we're talking about lust, but measure your last few months against Jesus' words. Have you taken drastic measures to fight sin? Or have you made excuses, delayed making adjustments, or continued to hide the sin rather than confess it? Have you tolerated the sin, coddled it, even welcomed it, and in so doing continued to give it a chance to hurt your life? One more before we transition to the next point. Are you willing, are you willing to bear the loss and endure the ridicule now for the sake of heavenly reward later? All right, in the battle against lust, you must avoid three errors, the wrong diagnosis of your problem, the wrong approach to kill your lust, and finally, you must avoid the wrong motive to kill your lust. There's two things regarding motive that I wanna draw your attention to. First is that Jesus brings up eternity 
twice. The, the motivation for tearing out eyes and cutting off hands is, is the same as this, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Family, all, all too often our motivation to pursue purity and holiness is earthly driven, not eternity driven. Often our motivation for killing sin can be things like it's, it's shame producing. I don't enjoy that. It makes me feel bad. I want to feel good. I'm embarrassed. Our motivation can often be wrapped up with the here and now and have nothing to do with eternity. But Jesus says that eternity is at stake. Friends, we're called to hate Lust, crushed lust, dig it out. In Colossians 3, 5 through 6, echoing Jesus' words, Paul says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Jesus wants you to pursue purity and holiness with eternity in view. We are just far too easily pleased with earthly happiness. As you, as you think about motivation for killing your sin, killing your lust, does eternity come in your view? Is everlasting joy in heaven forever more important to you than the here and now? If you're not willing to kill now, what, if you're not willing to kill now what won't be in heaven then, why do you want to be there? The cost may seem great in the moment, but the cost of eternity is worth it, is it not? The second thing regarding wrong motive to kill our lust is often our motivation for holiness and purity is driven by legalism. It's driven by this mentality that we can work to it. Here's my concern. I've got two different types of legalists in mind. The first legalist is convicted, convicted of their sin and believes that if they can string together several good, pure days and certainly weeks that God will be pleased with them. These folks typically experience high highs when those days of purities start coming together and as they turn into weeks. But then when sin comes in, Lust enters in, immediately experience the low lows, despair, self-loathing, shame. Their relationship with God is always topsy-turvy. The second legalist is also convicted, but believes that forgiveness is most likely out of reach because they're just too far gone in their sin. If Perhaps God will forgive them. It will most likely occur only after they have experienced enough self-hatred and shame. Listen, if you think 
of the ethics in the Sermon on the Mount, as some do with the Ten Commandments, as, as something that you obey in order to earn salvation, in order to earn God's favor, in order to keep God's favor, in order to earn God's forgiveness, you've got it dead wrong. As I mentioned earlier, the Sermon on the Mount's backdrop is Exodus and Moses giving the Ten Commandments. And similar to how the Exodus salvation preceded the giving of and expectant obedience to the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount has in view God's greater Exodus salvation to come through Jesus' death and resurrection. Listen, God first rescued the Israelites from Egypt, then he called them to obedience. If obedience to the Ten Commandments was a condition for their deliverance, they had never been freed from Egypt. So it is with us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our obedience, listen, listen, our obedience is a result of and a response to what God has already done for us in Jesus. And so to the first legalist, your obedience is not something that causes God to love you. His grace precedes, motivates, and empowers your efforts in obeying the commands of Scripture. Grace always precedes obedience. To the second legalist, you are never too far gone for the grace of God to reach you. What's more, Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient alone for your forgiveness. It's not Jesus plus your self-hatred and shame. Grace is greater than your sin. Family, in the battle against lust, the right motivation to kill your lust is having eternity and the grace of God in view. Like the song of the sirens, the alluring song of lust is strong at times. It's strong at times that we have trouble fighting it off. And when we give into it, it always leads to destruction. Spiritual destruction, most assuredly, but physical, mental, relational destruction awaits us. But Jesus in his grace wants us to resist lust. That's why he teaches us this. That's why he's so sharp about it too. He loves us and wants the best for us. In our passage, he taught us that the battle against lust, you must avoid three errors. The wrong diagnosis of your problem. God's standard for purity goes way deeper than behaviors. It goes to the desires and intentions of your hearts. The wrong approach to kill your lust. You must resist being soft and passive with your lust. You must be resolute and aggressive. And the wrong motive. Not with earthly motivations, but with eternity and God's grace in view. This is a weighty passage. Sin is weighty. Lust is devastating. This passage puts each of us on trial, exposing our sin, but family, we are not alone. Jesus did not save us, draw us out of our slavery of sin to then let us fall back into it. We're not alone. Our great Savior promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. He will always continue to be with us, empowering us along the way. 
God will finish the salvation work that he started in you. You can be sure of it. Yes, there will be some, some low times, but be assured that God finishes what he starts. For those who have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, there is full forgiveness for your sins in Jesus. There is hope for freedom from slavery to sin in Jesus. Today is the day to find forgiveness and freedom. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do, we give you thanks for preserving your word all these many years that we could come to know you, know what you've done for us in Christ and what you're calling us to do and be by your grace. And here in this passage, this, this weighty word, because you love us, you give us insight and understanding to our sin. You give us steep warnings to not be passive and soft with our sin, but you remind us that there is freedom and hope in Christ to overcome and kill our sin. Help us. We desperately, we are needy people in need of more of your grace to do these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.